You're listening to The Central Cast, recorded each week in front of a live audience in Glendale, California. Well, today is part two in our series called Parables, How Jesus Used Fiction to Speak Truth. Last week, we looked at the parable of the Good Samaritan. Today, we're looking at the parable of the rich man and Lazarus from Luke's gospel. Let's read it now. There was a rich man who dressed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate lay a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who longed to satisfy his hungry with what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs would come and lick his sores. The poor man died and was carried away by the angels to be with Abraham. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was being tormented, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. He called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and and cool my tongue, for I am in agony in these flames. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your lifetime you receive good things, and Lazarus in like manner evil things, but now he is comforted and you are in agony. Besides all this, between you and us is a great chasm so that those who might want to pass from here to there cannot do so. No one can cross over to to get to you. He said, the rich man said, then father, I beg you to send him to to my father's house for I have five brothers that he may warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. They have Moses and the prophets that they should listen to them. He said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. Abraham said, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. All right, there's the parable. It's interesting how this parable ends with Abraham saying, you know, if they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, neither will they listen to someone even if he comes back from the dead. I think this is probably an allusion to Jesus's own resurrection. And I think the author or the editors of Luke's gospel put these words in here as a critique of their fellow Jews who wouldn't believe Jesus was the Messiah or follow his teachings, even though he spoke to he, he spoke as one of the prophets did, and even rose from the dead, they were told. And to be clear, I'm not saying I agree with that critique or that this is something we should tell Jewish people, you know, like this message. What's the matter with you? Why can't you be convinced that Jesus was the Messiah? Look at how he echoes the prophets. And look, he was even raised from the dead. Now, this is not what I think we should be doing. This is actually a terrible thing to do. This is called supersessionism. Um, I believe I'm pronouncing that right. Yes, supersessionism, which is an idea, this idea that Christianity supersedes or trumps Judaism, and it's an old idea that has 
fed anti-Semitism for centuries. So let's not go down that road. Ironically, I don't think supersessionism is a very Christian idea at all. But there's an underlying point here that I do like. One could read Jesus here as saying, the righteous don't need miracles, resurrections, and supernatural things in order to be righteous. The righteous can recognize the divine wisdom of the scriptures and follow its teachings on love and justice and know that this is the will of God without needing to be cajoled or wowed by tales of the miraculous. Perhaps there's even something problematic about relying upon the supernatural and the miraculous as the basis of one's faith or the impetus for doing good and loving one's neighbor. The righteous shouldn't need that. Jesus, or yeah, Jesus is arguing, I think, at the end of this parable. That's how I like to read it, at least. I also like how this parable challenges, undermines, subverts, we might say, popular evangelical notions today of salvation. Notice that just like the parable of the Good Samaritan from last week, eternal life or, king, or, or the kingdom of heaven is not granted to those who believe the correct things about Jesus's divinity or, or who hold the correct doctrines or theologies or who are part of the correct religion. No, in, in both parables, both in the parable of the Good Samaritan and the one before us today, salvation or eternal life is granted only to those who care for the poor and come to the rescue of the afflicted. No mention is made of righteous duty, right belief, or correct theology. The only criteria is how one treats one's neighbor, particularly the so-called least of these. Remember, Jesus told the parable of the Good Samaritan in response to a lawyer who was a religious authority back then, asking him, what must I do to obtain eternal life? The inferred answer in that parable was the same as, as the one before us today. Care for the poor and the outcast. Do this and you shall live. The religion of the Samaritan or the rich man never factored into the equation, never came up. All that mattered was how they lived in relationship to their neighbor, particularly their neighbor in need, the vulnerable, the poor, the afflicted, the broken, the outcast. This parable also raises some really interesting questions, the one before us today, the rich man and Lazarus parable. This parable raises some interesting questions also about how early Christians or Jesus himself understood the afterlife or how first century Jews might have understood the afterlife. Now, to be clear, this is a parable, okay? That's, at least that's my position on it. I don't think it, it was probably even intended to give us a literal depiction of the afterlife, but I might be wrong about that. Some scholars believe this is not a parable at all and that Jesus was retelling an actual thing that happened to a real rich man and a real poor man named Lazarus 
not Lazarus of Bethany, by the way. This is not the same Lazarus uh, in the story of Jesus raising a man named Lazarus from the dead. That's a different Lazarus. But I'm not in the camp that thinks that this is an attempt to retell an actual story. I'm in the camp with the majority of scholars who believe this is a parable. But I'll be honest, even if it wasn't a parable, <laughs> I wouldn't take its depiction of the afterlife literally because that's me and that's where I'm at. In other words, I, I don't think heaven and hell exist in some dimension of space-time and are literally adjacent to each other with just a small chasm or gulf separating them such that people on one side can talk to those on the other. Can you imagine? Who could enjoy heaven while listening to the screams of the damned day and night? You'd think God in his infinite wisdom would have been a better city planner or developer than that to build hell right next to heaven. That's like putting a prison next to a five-star resort. Now, obviously, I'm being a bit facetious in order to make a point that I do not take the depiction of heaven and hell here literally. And keep in mind, Jesus isn't even calling this place hell. He's calling it Hades. Hades was the name of the Greek god of the underworld and name of actually, in Greek mythology, the name of the underworld itself. Why, you may ask, would Jesus, a Jew, invoke Greek mythology here in this parable? Well, because Judea and the rest of Palestine from that time period was Hellenized, meaning influenced by Greek culture since Alexander conquered the region three centuries before Christ. This means that the Jewish religion and Hebrew culture, or Israel's culture, had been deeply influenced to a great degree by Greek culture, Greek mythology, and Greek metaphysics. We won't get into all that here today, but suffice to say the Greco-Roman influence on Judaism and the development of early Christianity in the first century was major. That's why we find the word Hades here. The other word Jesus often used to describe hell was Gehenna. You've heard that term before, perhaps. Gehenna uh, is a Hebrew word that means the Valley of Hinnom, which was a small valley just to the southwest of Jerusalem. In this small valley, it was believed that child sacrifices had taken place many centuries before to Canaanite deities. Uh, in the time of Jesus in the Roman era, that valley, it's believed, was used as like a trash dump where trash was burning day and night and where unclaimed dead bodies were taken and disposed of. It was considered a place that was cursed and a place that was full of all things unclean. And all this begs a question. If Jesus spoke of hell in all these metaphorical ways, then what about hell is really real? Well, for me, nothing about it is real. I do not believe in it anymore. I can't get there. Now, some Christians hold to alternative views of hell that say it's not a place of fire and brimstone or physical torture, but a place of darkness where the wicked are banished and are sent there maybe for only a period of time until they repent and can be restored and brought to heaven or something. This is not unlike the Catholic concept of purgatory. Some Christians also believe in what's called annihilationism. 
that the souls of the wicked are annihilated upon death, that they simply cease to exist and only the righteous enter the afterlife. So I'm not saying that there aren't perhaps better views of hell to be had, although I got a problem with those too. But I find this so-called traditional view of hell as a, as a place of flames and fire and a place of conscious eternal torment, like Hades, I, I find this idea to be absolutely despicable and deplorable. As John Caputo puts it, the idea of hell is as sick an idea as we've ever come up with. Even the most ambitious psychopath would stand in awe of such brutality and cruelty. Think about it. We're talking about torture without end. Torture without the hope of escape by death. You can't even die and escape it. Unforgiving, unrelenting, unlimited torture and pain for all of eternity. What the Romans did to Jesus for a few hours on the cross pales in comparison to what the church has come up with here in this traditional idea of hell. And we're told that God sends us there because he loves us and because he's just. What a terrible idea. Perhaps the worst idea that religion has ever invented. And to be clear, I'm not convinced the Bible actually even teaches that there is such a place, a place of conscious eternal torment. Such an idea, I think, is based on a misreading of the text, like the one before us today, and comes from the minds of people in positions of power, namely the medieval church, that use this concept of hell to control and to use people, with, you know, use fear, terror, to control people. So that's how I deal with the, the depiction of Hades in this parable and elsewhere. What about the depiction of heaven? Well, let's keep in mind that Jesus doesn't actually call it heaven in this parable, but the bosom of Abraham. The bosom of Abraham was an ancient Jewish concept of the afterlife that developed probably just a few hundred years before Christ. Prior to this idea, ancient Hebrews seemed to believe only in a place called Sheol, and Sheol simply was, is translated as the grave. That's it. A, a place of oblivion, a place of non-being, a place of what, what might be interpreted forgetfulness. Sheol was the grave, and everybody went there, according to Hebrew tradition, whether they were righteous or wicked, whether they were Jew or Gentile, everybody ended up in this same place, Sheol, the grave, oblivion, non-being. So Sheol wasn't even really a concept of the afterlife, but sometime, at some point, a few hundred years before Christ, Jews came to believe in this, this idea called the, the bosom of Abraham, which is, they believed to be the place where the righteous dead went to live with the ancestors, their ancestors, not just their own family and ancestors, but the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, Moses, etc. Everyone else went to Sheol, the belief was, i.e. the grave, and stayed there, but the righteous dead went to the bosom of Abraham. 
which again, wasn't heaven per se, but it was close. Now, one might infer from all this today that I don't believe in heaven or hell at all, but that would be a mistake. First, I'm, I'm very much open to the idea of our consciousness existing beyond our mortal frame and returning to the source, the one, aka God, whatever you want to call it. But that aside, I, I do like, I do take the idea of heaven and hell in this parable seriously, because for me and many others, the message of this parable is that we have the ability to create heaven and hell in this life, in this world, in the way that we treat each other. We have the power to create Gehennas and Hades for others and ourselves. We also have the power to create little pieces of heaven on earth. We have the ability to experience a kind of abundant life or everlasting life or life everlasting or a sense of eternal or infinite depth here and now in the way that we love and the way that we care for each other and the way that we work for justice and the way that we share in, in each other's sufferings and the way that we invest ourselves in the love of life and in the love of each other. We have the ability to create heaven on earth, little pieces of it, and experience eternity, if you will. Experience the infinite in single moments in time. We give ourselves over to compassion and mercy and kindness and the radical embrace of this life and this world. That, to me, is a picture of heaven on earth. And it and an experience of a kind of undying spiritual vitality, if you will, a kind of everlasting life. Maybe the deepest message of this parable is that when we live like the rich man, we create hell on earth for ourselves and others. When we neglect the poor, when we turn our eyes away and refuse to care for the broken and the oppressed, we create hell on earth. But when we care for the least of these, when we care for the Lazaruses in our midst, whose name, by the way, Lazarus's name means God is my help. When we help and care for the Lazaruses in our midst, the poor, the oppressed, the afflicted, and the outcast, by caring for them, we create heaven on earth, a little piece of heaven on earth both for them and ourselves. So in a way, I absolutely am affirming the reality of heaven and hell here this morning in this way. And I, for me, at least, that's the deeper meaning, the deeper message of this parable. And for me, this is also the deeper message of the Lord's Supper, which we're going to partake in now. This, the message of this is that here we find the broken body and shed blood of Jesus Christ. And by receiving this, we become his body in the world, right? Lazarus's name meant God is my help. The deeper symbolism of this sacrament is that we become God in the world. We become the body of Christ in the world. We become the helping hands of God in the world. For the Lazaruses in our midst. That's the deeper meaning of this, that we become the hands and feet of God in the world. We become God's presence in the world for the Lazaruses in our midst. Let us partake in the Lord's Supper now 
and meditate on that idea. And here at Central, all are welcome to partake in the Lord's Supper. And the way that we do that, for those of you who are new, is we serve it to each other. You take one of the gluten-free crackers and you dip it in the grape juice. You take it, you receive it, and then you serve the person next to you. Be blessed now in this. Each episode of the Central Cast is followed by an interactive discussion. If you'd like to participate in recordings, or if you're interested in exploring progressive faith and theology for a postmodern context, check out centralavenuechurch.org. Here's this week's unedited discussion. What's your take on this? How do you read this parable? What stands out to you? Um, what do you like about it? What don't you like about it? I don't know. We could also talk about concepts of the afterlife. Um, where are you at with that these days? That's always an interesting question, too. But yeah, anybody. And if you're online, you can unmute and raise your voice that way. Just jump right in if you'd like. Hey, this is uh, Steve Block over here in San Diego. Um, can you guys hear me? Hello? I'm not hearing anything. Yes, we can hear you. Oh, great. Um, yeah, so I guess I had two comments. Um, one is kind of, I think, how I've kind of read the story in the past. It's just, I think it's a recognition of just how people are, and, and it kind of sounds nihilistic, but you know, to, to your comment that people need some supernatural event to actually care and to believe and, and be good. Like, I think that is a sad reality that I think sometimes people just don't care. And it, it isn't until, and, and I think the character is recognizing this story that, hey, they're not going to care unless you, you show someone that's raised from the dead to actually care about it. And I think, unfortunately, that maybe not to that extreme, but sometimes unless there's some major convincing event that maybe people just don't care and it's kind of sad um the other my other comment is um kind of a something that i've just thought of today as i was hearing this story again is is maybe more of a critique of you know maybe conservative christianity in that even though they do believe in the supernatural events that they do believe that all these miracles were supposedly real and that jesus was really resurrected that they still miss the point of what um you know i think the gospel is supposed to be about that you know they do need to care for people and and people's well-beings and and it's ironic that while they'll believe in all of those things they don't carry themselves in a way that you know reflects you know what i think the gospel is about so those are my comments yeah hey thanks for sharing and what is your name this is Steve Bach. Yeah, I knew it was yeah. Steve. Yeah. I, didn't to, I was like, that sounds like Steve. Okay, cool. Yeah. Thanks thanks for jumping in, Steve. Mm -hmm. Good to hear from you. Yeah, Jason. Just questions. One, um, how much of the fire and brimstone afterlife in that Jesus time was always considered... Uh, not hyperbolic, but like a parable versus a belief. Like you mentioned that they got Hellenized, they started believing in 
fire and brimstone, hell or Hades, right? The word Hades, but Hades was not always fire and brimstone in the Greek culture. Yeah. How much of it was known, recognize, would it have been easily recognizable as, as you know, parable or, or uh, complete fiction versus this is what we think the afterlife actually is. Yeah. Does that make sense? I think so. Um, let me just respond to the Hades thing. Um, I was, when I was uh, preparing this talk for the, this week, you know, I was doing some research on what Hades was for in ancient Greek culture. And best as I can tell, it was a place that was kind of gloomy and dark and misty. It wasn't <laughs> flames. Like, and when I read this parable again, like Jesus describes Hades as a, like this, he's burning in the flames, right? Um, and so it was a place that was kind of gloomy and dark, but then here we find it with flames. And I'm not sure how the, how that depiction of Hades, you know, why, I don't know what was going on in first century Jewish culture that added that, or maybe they didn't add it. Maybe it was just a different understanding of Hades from Greece. I, I don't know. Um, I guess that's the best way to put it. I don't know, <laughs> but nevertheless, he is invoking the name Hades here, which was not just the name of the underworld from Greek mythology, but the name of the Greek God of the underworld, right? Or the, or the writer was. Maybe or the not. what? Or maybe the writer was. The oh, person. the writer. Yeah. Well, we need to be careful. Yeah. We're really talking about who wrote the gospel and put that in there, um, or the later editors, but, um, in my opinion, but, uh, yeah, that's an interesting question. What was the other side of that question? Uh, did the people who who would be, who would have been reading it contemporaneously treat it as metaphor mm. or as parable or fiction, or would did they treat it as literal fact? This is what the afterlife is is like. The short answer is I don't know. Um, but again, there is. There are conservative scholars who believe this is no, this is not a parable. Jesus is presenting this as an actual historical event. But the majority of scholars say there is too much that is like every other parable in this parable to you know to infer that. Um, so you know, obviously I'm in the parable camp, but I, you know, I I don't know how they read it. But the fact that I most scholars think it was a parable. Parables, again, were fictitious tales that were object lessons, you know, um, for the most part. But it raises questions, you know, that we do wrestle with here, Jason, a lot. And, you know, how did how did these ancient people, these pre-modern ancient people living, you know, in that part of the world understand history, time and space? They understood it differently than us. That's apparent, right? Was was history, legend, myth, all one thing kind of cobbled together? I think the evidence for it points in that direction that they did not think of history the way we do that we modern post enlightenment scientific people think that history is simply what happened history is simply the past back then history is what you made it history was whatever you wanted it to be i mean we we find not just the hebrews doing this but the egyptians and everybody else from back then did creative history in order to like say no this king conquered our king won the won that battle, or if the, the, your king didn't win that battle, you would not record that as history. If, if your empire was defeated, like you just wouldn't record it in order to kind of say it never happened. And, and so it's kind of like history was not the way we think it is now. It, it wasn't, you know, to the best of our understanding of the way they understood, even language itself was just seen as this kind of like almost ma magical thing that was 
like the words coming out of my mouth right now, what are they? Well, they're just they're they're just sounds. If you can't understand me, this just sounds like gibberish. They're symbols of ideas in my head. You know, language itself was rife with a kind of magical dimension. It's just you know scribbles on a on on papyrus or or animal hide. What are those symbols? But ideas in someone's head that are kind of you know symbolically represented on as ink on on cowhide or the sounds coming out of my mouth. They're just symbols of ideas. The whole world language itself was rife with magic and symbolism for them. So why wouldn't they also think of story as rife with symbols and almost like having this magical quality? It's not the actual, you know, literal nature of it that's powerful. It's the underlying symbolism that, that holds the magic. Um, and you're casting spells by sharing these stories or creating the world. You're not just retelling the past, you're creating the world by sharing these stories. I think that's based upon my readings, how they understood language. It was metaphysical. These stories were inherently metaphysical. Um, I hope that answers your question. <laughs> I'm not answering your question, but I'm saying that it's, it's, I think they understood these things in ways we just don't. That's the best I can do. Yeah. And yeah. then the other little point out was came across my head was that um yeah the parables about take care of the poor if you don't want to go to hell right um but the guy who went to heaven was poor um and it reminded me of like beatitudes or reminded me of job where yeah. it's like suffering kind of gives you credit yep towards the kingdom of god <laughs> yeah uh and the more you suffer the more you have a chance of going to heaven versus the more you have it good here, the the more you use up your credit. I just thought it's, it's just an interesting. It is interesting, and I didn't. I was going to include that because Jesus actually says, or Abraham says in the parable to the rich man, the reason why Lazarus is in heaven is because he had nothing, because he was poor, and the reason why you, the rich man, are in hell is because you had wealth and riches, like you had. Lazarus had evil things in this life, and you had good things. So you're in hell because you were rich. Lazarus is in heaven because he was poor. I mean, that it's 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 kind of you're absolutely right to point that out. That's what Abraham says in the parable. It's not because Lazarus was this really great guy. It's because he was poor. Yeah. And like, and the, and be poor the if rich, you want to go to heaven. Yeah, and it's as if the rich are immediately indicted in the gospels for just simply being rich. Like you're evil simply because you're rich. Now, us today in this capitalistic, you know. Uh, world that we live in, and this meritocracy where, you know, we think, well, the rich are rich because God has blessed them and, or they earned it. You know, we have a different conception of that. But back then, it's an entirely different economic outlook on the world. Um, and frankly, uh, I think there's good reason. I think in some ways we need, we need to revisit that idea because um, the way capitalism works, Max, I think you posted something on Facebook this week about how uh, Elon Musk is like revered, but a lot of people don't understand that, you know, in order to get that rich, how many people you have to crush in order to get there, you know, and there's this, you know, I could go down the road of critiquing capitalism here as an inherently evil system, but yeah, that's there, Jason. Yeah, it's a good point. Um, other thoughts, questions, remarks? Yeah, Leanne. Hey, and this mic's working today. This one, yeah. Yeah, two quick things off of that. Um, the first one is like, as Jason was referencing, like the Beatitudes and the idea of like flipping the hashtag blessed on its head. 
um, I love, but I also, not that like Jesus was wrong to do this, but I also think that sometimes that idea can be appropriated poorly where it's like, oh, you're abused. Well, you're suffering. So that means God's love, like God loves you more because you're suffering or like, oh, like you're being taken advantage of, or you're being oppressed or you're being like harmed in some way. Like there's definitely that idea out there, especially on the right and towards women and towards other folks, people of color, where it's just like, oh, you're being harmed. Well, blessed are the poor, blessed are the poor in spirit. So like, it's like, how do you ride that line between, it feels like the Beatitudes are really helpful towards people who are, you know, on the side of having wealth and power and prestige to take them down a notch and reconsider their lives. But I do feel like sometimes it can be, I don't know, like that whole idea of like, well, if you're poor and oppressed, then you're going to heaven. So you should stay that way because it's good for God. Like that can go down a dark road. So it's like interesting to kind of navigate those two poles. And then also real quick, like the whole like language of fire and brimstone, it always was an issue for me with some of the more harsher Jesus quotes where he's like, you'll be thrown into the oven or thrown into the fire. Like he says that a couple, not that I'm a Bible expert, but I always stumbled with that of like, why is he using such fiery imagery? And I just wonder how much of that is like, the interpretation turning it into hell like a fiery hell as opposed to him just using like an agricultural or quotidian symbol of like you'll be thrown into the oven meaning i don't know something other than hellfire yeah no it, the, the gospels are not uh consistent <laughs> in the way that they present jesus's talk about hell in the afterlife sometimes he makes it he says and they shall be cast into outer darkness I was like, wait a minute, I thought it was, I thought hell was this bright, fiery place because fire creates light. And you're saying now that they'll be cast out in the outer darkness? You, like, let's not, I, I feel like Christians, because we were all raised, not all of us, but these kind of hyper, like literal conservative traditions where it tries to like, oh, it's outer darkness. It's not fun. like obviously this is metaphor. Obviously. I mean, um, and uh, of course, I love John Caputo's statement, Jesus didn't just tell parables, Jesus was a parable, you know, and so I kind of read the whole Gospels as a parable, and this modern evangelical notion that unless they're completely historical, they're not meaningful, I think that's bullshit, you know, it has no imagination to it whatsoever, and, you know, it's it's deeply also, ironically so, you know, this this book that evangelicals revere and practically worship, they're woefully inept at understanding its literary features. How weird is that? How ironic is that? And why wouldn't we think that this one, this, this, that this book contains parables and stories that absolutely tell real truths about what it means to be the people of God? It doesn't have, you know, to look at the gospels as parables themselves doesn't diminish in any way the role of God in there, or the, the reality of God, or our connection to the divine. But we've been taught that it does, because we've been taught biblical inerrancy, right? This idea, you know what that is. So anyway, I'm, I guess I'm just responding to it that way, like, yeah, in some ways, we kind of have to um, deconstruct those evangelical notions that, you know, told us, oh, this is how you have to read it. But good point, Leanne, yeah. Did you want to respond to that at all, or? I like metaphors, so I'm, yeah. I'm on board. Yeah, you're a storyteller. I mean, it's like stories where it all, it's all about the story, you know? Like, yeah, anyway, good stuff. Somebody else. 
Yeah, uh, Anne. Thanks for passing that. Um, you were asking, you know, like any of us, like where our views are now on heaven and hell. So I, like many of us, grew up very literal, conservative, charismatic, evangelical, like pretty far fundamentalist. And a number of years ago, I did a, um, um, through a group loosely affiliated with the church I was attending, a chronological Bible study. So we didn't read it Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, but in as much as we could, you know, could be ascertained chronological order to see the storyline. And it was really interesting. I, I did it three times. It was a nine month study. And um, I, the first time I did it, I was specifically looking for answers to, is there hell? Because I was really struggling with that idea. And um, read the whole Old Testament, didn't find any real references, just Sheol, like you talk about. And then you get to the New Testament, and there's been this 400 or so year gap between them, and the Jews have been Hellenized. And all of a sudden, there are these references to Hades and an afterlife, and um, God is like a, like he went to therapy or something, like he's, he's a gentler, kinder God. God the therapy, he's better now, yeah. <laughs> he's better now in the New Testament. And I literally, um, because I was still in this very, um, you know, somewhat literalistic way of looking at the Bible, and, and is it true or is it? not true like it threw me so much i i literally told friends i almost became an atheist i was like well i can't believe in this apparently because this makes no sense right and over the years obviously that has has shifted but um i saw um a meme yesterday on a deconstructing facebook page where a woman says um some you know friend says you can't believe in heaven and not believe in hell. And she goes, well, actually, yes, I can. <laughs> and Don't tell me what to believe would be another good response. Yeah. Because we have this very dualistic view of the world. If, if you believe in heaven, then that's a reward. So therefore there must be a punishment if you don't get the reward. Like, and um, this, like, I don't know what I believe about the afterlife. I, I have a hard time believing in a materialistic view where this is really just a hundred percent it. But um, um, I find it interesting to kind of just think about it in terms of like you refer to ground of being, like joining back into that, um, listening to um, more like Native American narratives where we're just all part of this cycle. Um, really fascinating to me. Um, so that's kind of where I am. But I had a question though about the um, Saul calling back the spirit of Samuel. I've always been curious about that story because there really isn't much evidence in the Old Testament of them believing in an afterlife and how that was a given. It was, it was severely um, 
and that restricted it was it was not allowed like they were to kill all the mediums like it was such a no-no so obviously it was expected that this was real and he found a medium and he tricked her by not letting her know he was the king and he had her call Saul back Samuel back um, in that story, so there, there, I never have understood the connection. I'm curious if you have anything to say about that. Uh, wow, uh, that's it's funny that you're telling that story. I'm like, he did that? I don't remember that story. Oh yeah, wait a minute. Yeah, that's in there. Um, I, I have to confess, I I reread it while you were oh cool your sermon. How dare you? <laughs> um, no, that's a that's really cool. You know, keep in mind that necromancy you know, uh, speaking to the dead, you know, uh, that kind of thing, um, invoking the dead back, you know, to life or, you know, like in a seance. I mean, that stuff was going all around the ancient theories. And so a lot of those ideas were syncretized with ancient Judaism, and there might not have been like a robust theology behind it. It might, you might, you know what I mean? So, I mean, we have to be careful to infer from that one thing, like, oh, they, they believe that, you know, uh, in, in, in the immortal soul that that Samuel's soul was somewhere in the afterlife and they could call it back. It might have just been like, you know, reanimating it from Sheol. I, I don't know how they would have thought about that. So the answer, the short answer is I don't know, but I do know that necromancy, necromancy and sorcery and those ideas like mediums, that stuff was going on in the ancient Near East during that time period around Israel's neighbors. And it absolutely influenced, you know, the the religion of the ancient hebrews to some degree at that time um you can find some wild stories in the old testament like that which are absolutely related to other religions that they were being influenced by at that time um that's the short answer that's the best answer to that question probably um but it's interesting even in the gospels when jesus asks his disciples who do, who do you say that i am they respond, well, some say that you're John the Baptist reincarnated. You don't say reincarnated, but that's what they mean. And some say you're John the Baptist, who was already dead. Or some say you're Elijah, right? That somehow you are, you know, the embodiment of Elijah's spirit, whether that means literally you're Elijah come back to from the dead, or that you carry the mantle, the, the anointing of Elijah. I don't know how they understood that. Could be both. Some might have believed he was, you know actually inhabited by the spirit of Elijah or was physically, literally Elijah come back to life or just carried the mantle of Elijah? These are all interesting questions because it gets down to like, how did they metaphysically understand their faith and their spirituality? We don't really know. Um, yeah. And didn't they believe, because they believed Elijah was caught up into heaven. Um, right. He didn't die. So they, as part of their faith, didn't they believe he was going to come back at some point? Yeah, there was there some of two. that. I can't remember. Yeah, I, I confused what yeah was. There's that in there, right? Yeah. Yeah. Bob, did you want to say something? Oh, I thought I heard your voice. Maybe it was the, it was a voice from on high. I thought it was yours. Um, uh, no, but these are really good. These are really good questions. Um, and they remind, and honestly, what they teach us is that there's a lot of diversity of thought. Not clear. It's not simple. Anybody who says the Bible's clear on this stuff, it's not. It's diverse. It's diverse is the people who wrote it, right? And that's cool because that, that complexity, that ambiguity kind of invites our voice into the conversation. What do you think? How do you read this? What are your views on the afterlife? They count just as much as anybody else's. Isn't that cool? 
I, I, I find that cool. It's an inclusive, welcoming space. It's a journey and not, with not a set of clear answers. Anybody else this morning? Okie dokie. Well, it's 11.30 on the nose. We are done. Let's uh, conclude with our benediction that we say together. Let's say this together now. As we go from this place, we commit ourselves to the path of love, honesty, and humility. We dedicate ourselves, as Christ did, to the cause of justice and the courageous embrace of this life, this world, and each other. Amen. Amen.